and welcome to episode 1718 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Happy 10th anniversary of Mike Trout making the major leagues. Wow. Yeah, nine days after I met the woman who would become my wife, I formed another lasting relationship when I met a major leaguer named Mike Trout. July 8th, 2011, he went 0 for 3 against the Mariners. It was an inauspicious start and sort of an inauspicious brief rookie campaign. But we know what happened next, and it's been a hell of a ride since then. So I feel like we should do just a general Mike Trout appreciation episode sometime soon, maybe for his 30th birthday, which is coming up in less than a month now. It feels a little... (laughs) Yeah, I don't really want to think about that either, but it's coming whether we want it to or not not and it feels a little strange to do a Mike Trout celebration right now when he is on the injured list and has been for a while but hopefully by then he will be back and at full strength again and so I don't know maybe we can do like a Mike Trout fun facts episode or just a general appreciation but he really has enriched our lives over this past decade and certainly enriched this podcast I guess his arrival in the majors predates the beginning of this podcast but his ascension to best player in baseball kind of coincided with the start of this podcast in 2012. So he has been sort of the patron saint of the podcast. I know others have come and gone and Otani is reigning supreme right now, but over the history of this podcast, Mike Trout is the patron saint of Effectively Wild. Will you allow me one fun fact that is relevant to his debut? So, you know, you mentioned his debut in Auspicious. Do you want to know what Mike Trout's career numbers against Seattle Mariners are? <laughs> I'm guessing they got a bit better after that initial 0 for 3. So he has played 167 games. So he's basically played an entire season, more than an entire season, against the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> uh, on a day when Bauman released his What If Lindor Had Been Drafted by the Mariners story, this is just such a, a an, an unnecessary gut punch I'm about to deliver, but I'm going to do it anyway. He has batted 326, 436, 56 against the Mariners. <laughs> he has hit 47 home runs against the Mariners. His TOPS plus, so his... His split relative to his standard performance against Mariners, 115, which is not uh-huh. his 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 highest TOPS plus against a particular opponent. But Is it his highest against a division rival, at least, with the giant sample? I think that that might be true. Let me sort this. This is great radio. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is indeed his highest against a division rival. No, that's incorrect. I'm sorry. Uh, he has a similar TOPS plus against the Texas Rangers. Uh-huh. Well, I guess that makes sense. Uh, the Rangers have had some lousy pitching years in there too, yeah. and and a better ballpark for offense and all yes. that. I forget TOPS plus doesn't adjust for ballpark. Does I it? it's, well, don't I, I, think I'll, it does. Yeah, I don't think it does. We'll have to check on that, yeah. but. That could be part of it. But yeah, at least you've had the privilege of seeing a lot of Mike Trout when watching the team that you have maybe watched the most in person over that span. He has been beating up on that team, but at least you've seen him at his best. Yeah. I mean, I'll just always remember, like, there was one time that I saw him in person where James Paxton issued him a golden sombrero. 
and mm-hmm. that was nice. But the rest of the time, it has been it has been less good for the uh, <laughs> for for the Mariners when facing Mike Trout. But um, it is just a really magical. He's so good. We will we will do we will do justice to his greatness. We would also be remiss speaking of of Mariners and 10-year uh, anniversaries. This is also uh, uh Kyle Seeger's 10-year anniversary from being called up. I, I believe it was yesterday <laughs> or the day before. Uh, uh-huh. So Okay. That's gone well. better for Seattle than than facing Mike Trout. So there you go. There's there's a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. That had not crossed my radar to the same extent you as know, the Mike Trout 10th anniversary, but that are. is uh, special also. So yeah. That's nice. Congrats to Kyle. But yeah, I once wrote an article, a little retrospective about Mike Trout's rookie season because you look at the stats and you wonder, how did he go from not hitting well as a rookie to being the best player in baseball and like one of the best players ever the very next season? And a lot of it, I mean, it was, you know, an abbreviated sample and 40 games and 135 plate appearances and all of that. But also he had a 247 BABIP that year, which is just really weird because he is extremely fast and hits the ball hard and was super, super fast at that time. So I think he got a little unlucky and various other things went against him. Clearly the talent was there, but it still took a lot of us, I think, by surprise just how much he dominated the very next year. But that was wonderful. I think uh, someone in the Facebook group had just gone back to the beginning of the podcast in 2012 and was listening from the start. And I think it was like one of the very early episodes we were debating, is Mike Trout the best player in baseball? (laughs) And it was like (laughs) July of 2012. So we were already on brand. And yeah, he probably already was (laughs) the best player in baseball. So thanks for the memories, Mike. And here's hoping there are many more ahead. Okay, can I just do a couple more of these? I'm just going to do a couple more. He has a, a he has a 360 BABIP against Seattle. He has only grounded into four double plays against the Mariners. Huh. That seems surprising just because of how often he's faced them. Although yeah. I guess given where he typically bats, maybe that's not so surprising. Another thing that I would just say uh, about Mike Trout versus the Mariners is that while Mariners fans are are familiar with his greatness, if you if you look at his TOPS plus against other opponents, I think that you would maybe think if and granted far fewer games and played appearances, unsurprisingly, because these are National League teams, but like. If you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates, do you think that Mike Trout is just garbage based on what you've seen? Because Mike Trout has a negative five TOPS plus. And I, I keep throwing that term out here. And in case folks are less familiar or not remembering every single one of Jeff Sullivan's stat plus, it's the, a, a number greater than 100 indicates that this batter did better than usual in the split, while one below 100 indicates that they have done worse. So just in case people needed that reminder, he has a negative five TOPS plus against the Pirates. He has just a seven TOPS plus against the Cubs. So I think there are a couple of fans who've maybe only seen Mike Trout in limited experience against their preferred National League team who are just like, I don't know why they talk about this guy so much. (laughs) Yeah. Could be. I mean, there are a lot of people who still wonder why we talk about Mike Trout so much and maybe the war non-believers or the people who think, well, if they don't make the playoffs, how good could he be? That old refrain. But yeah, there are definitely players like especially when I was a fan who was sort of seeing the game through the lens of one team and watching all of that one team's games. 
And you can form an impression of an opposing player who just happens to be bad <laughs> when yeah. his team is playing your team. And scouts will talk about that too. You know, they saw a player on his good days or see a player on his bad days. And hopefully they have the scouting acumen to see beyond that and right. judge the skills in the process. But that's easier said than done. And if you're not a scout and you're just going based on what you've seen, like there are definitely players who like when I was watching them, it was like, what's so special about this guy? But right. hopefully you take a little larger view and zoom out a bit and maybe look up his fan graphs page sometime because yeah. uh, he's pretty good on the whole. So with Mike Trout, who, you know, wins MVP awards a lot, yeah. hopefully like <laughs> people sh- are a little less sure they're, myopic they're when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So our last episode has not been up for very long as we record this one on Thursday afternoon, but we have already received some responses to one of our banter topics, which was players with the highest ratios of highlights to value, however you want to measure value. And this was prompted by Billy Hamilton's incredible catch earlier this week. And I was wondering, is he the player who has the highest ratio of just highlights because he makes great catches and he steals bases and he scores improbably on balls that it doesn't look like he should score on? But then when you look at the overall line, he is not great. He has been pretty good at times, but he doesn't get on base, et cetera, et cetera. He has flaws as a player. And by the end of that episode, as I was putting it up, a few other names had occurred to me. And we mentioned Bo Jackson in that episode. But I was thinking Ray Ordonez because I remember watching Ray Ordonez growing up and, you know, he won a few gold gloves and he was in the rookie of the year voting his rookie season. And I remember all of the really flashy plays and he used to dive and go to his knees and he looked great. It it was like watching Ozzy Smith or something, probably not to that level, but about as close as you had at that time. And then you look at his war values now and it's like, one or two war for his whole career. So I mentioned Ray Ordonez at the end of that episode, and I also mentioned a couple other. Willie Mopena came to mind. Oh, that's as a, a really good one. Yeah, guy who hit giant home runs but wasn't actually that good. Chaz Rowe, who's mm-hmm. like, he's he's been good at times, but fairly fungible and replaceable. But he has that sweepy slider that everyone loves to make highlights of and gifts of. So those guys came to mind. Terrence Gore, maybe. But... I'm glad I mentioned Ray Ordonez because we have received several emails already from people giving us feedback to that prompt, and every single one has said Ray Ordonez so far. We've gotten several Ray Ordonez suggestions, so I think he might be the best contender, at least in recent years, the greatest rival to Billy Hamilton when it comes to looked better than he actually was. Yeah, that's a really good one. Uh, I should have asked you this question before because then you could have looked it up. In terms of the number of Rookie of the Year votes he received relative to remaining career war, he has hmm. to be at the at the top of a of a mismatch leaderboard, right? He might be. Yeah, I mean there are some actual Rookie of the Year winners sure, <laughs> who didn't do much beyond the rest no, of their career, true. but yeah, he'd probably be somewhere on that list. And just looking at like the advanced stats that we have now, it it doesn't seem like his defensive reputation was exaggerated because at least in some of those early seasons, he had some pretty eye-popping run save totals like it weirdly fluctuated. So like 1996, his rookie year, he's 25. He saved 11 runs in the field. Then 1997, 20 runs in the field. This is according to Total Zone at Baseball Reference. 
Then, weirdly, 1998, negative four runs in the field. And then 1999, 33 runs in the field. He won the Gold Glove all three of those years, 97 to 99, whether his run saved was plus 33 or negative four. So I don't know if that's one of those uh, don't look at single season defensive stats because they fluctuate a lot or whether he had something going on that season. He played 153 games, so I don't know if he had something hampering him there, but I guess the reputation was already established, so he won the Gold Glove anyway, even if the stats that we have now didn't suggest that it was justified. But for a few years there, he really was fielding as as well as it looked like he was fielding, but... He didn't really continue to field at that level. I know he fractured his arm in May 2000 trying to tag out FP Santangelo and he missed the rest of the season and his defense or at least his defensive ratings never really recovered all the way. And also he just couldn't hit at all. I mean, he makes Billy Hamilton look like a good hitter. So that really saps your value. But when I think of like best defensive shortstops I've seen, I mean, I didn't see Ozzy in his prime. So I think of Andrelton Simmons, but I also think of young Ray Ordonez, who really was good, but just wasn't very valuable. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, he couldn't hit it all. Like uh, the year that he had his plus 33 defensive run saved, he hit 258, 319, 317, and that was 1999. That was PD era. So that's a 64 OPS plus, and that was his best offensive season to date. <laughs> so yeah, he made a lot of outs. Yeah, that's a. I, I like how how reliable our listeners are. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're just so reliable. My my other suggestion, this is very niche. Do you want to hear my other niche suggestion? Sure. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Diego Vieira, the the reliever? Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh vague, you're 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 projecting the right amount of like remembrance enthusiasm <laughs> for him. Right. But he he was not very good. And I think is playing internationally now. And he was briefly, he came up with Seattle and then he was briefly on the White Sox. And again, not very good. But in his debut, he he had this habit of throwing like a max effort pitch all the way to the backstop as part of his warmups, which sort of uh. narrowly missed the home plate umpire in the course of his debut. And then mm-hmm. he, he snared a very hard struck like comebacker in his debut and again not very good but i remember those things so yeah. um maybe he is he is in the reliever camp his track record even shorter uh in terms of both um length and quality when it compared to chesro but um, he was maybe <laughs> the guy i was gonna come up with mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that that was a niche one you're right we have not received <laughs> any suggestions for him i'm here to far. offer very specific mariners takes that is what my role <laughs> on today's podcast is apparently So here we are. Well, by the time this podcast is posted, we will probably have received several more Ray Ordonez emails. But if you have any suggestions for anyone not named Ray Ordonez, please let us know. Yes. And I am disappointed in us that when we were talking about the dead bat bounces of Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera in the last episode, we talked about Pujols making his first start as the number two batter. But we did not mention that Pujols was hitting in the two hole 
which was something that Grant Brisby took great delight in when we did episode 1500. And I believe Sam brought up the saying in the two hole, which uh, he could not believe that anyone says with a straight face. And then, of course, Grant took it to Pujols hitting in the two hole, which he had a few times to that point, but he had never started in the two hole. So now we have Pujols hitting in the two hole. And I'm disappointed that we did not acknowledge the comedic potential of that. Well, I'd say the following, Ben, and I'm going to say this, and I'm going to feel bad, because it's going to sound like I'm slighting our dear friend Grant, and I don't mean (laughs) it as a slight against Grant, because he is a dear friend, but I think that sometimes the mark of a good punster, of a good, Uh good punster, are the ones that you leave on the ground, so I will tell you that this joke occurred to me, and I thought, too easy, too easy of a joke, I'm not going to make it. And Good no one you. can no one can fact check that, but it's true. I promise <laughs> it's true. And so, you know, I understand Grant, you know, he has a reputation to uphold. And sometimes <laughs> you 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 know, if you don't make the pun that people expect you to make, they're like, Why didn't you make this pun? Like yeah. like you're asleep on the job or something, like you're a security guard to who's dozing during the night watch or something like that. But um but sometimes it's okay to just not make the joke. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. Well, I applaud your restraint. <laughs> I have really to admirable. exhibit it every now and again just to demonstrate that it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, people don't believe me. <laughs> and the last bit of banter I have is that they are doing away with the humidor for the Home Run Derby. Yes! And I could not be more pleased. And will be announced on Wednesday night that there will be no humidor in effect for the Home Run Derby on Monday. So we are totally turning back the clock here to Coors Field Home Run Derby of 1998 when Ken Griffey Jr. won it. No humidor at all, and we are going to see some Titanic taters potentially. And I'm pretty excited for this because really, if you're going to hold the Home Run Derby in Coors Field, it entirely defeats the purpose to have the humidor in effect to suppress the batted ball distances. You want the big beefy sluggers to hit the ball as far as they possibly can at altitude, and that is what we're going to see. So I believe they will be taking aim at the StatCast era home run derby record of 513 feet, which was a homer hit by Aaron Judge in 2017 at Marlins Park. And the longest homer StatCast has tracked in a real game was 505 feet by Nomar Mazzara, of all people, with the Rangers in 2019. So if we don't see some 500-footers here with Otani and Joey Gallo and the rest of that cast, I will be quite disappointed. I love that they are just giving us what we want, that they're like, yeah. the people want the big boppers. I, I have two tiny quibbles, though, and I want okay. you to tell me if you agree with them. First, I think that they should change the rule that the home run has to land before you can pitch again. I think oh. just hit all of them. Hit all of the dingers. I don't I don't care about the, the competitive integrity of this. <laughs> that is unimportant to me, although I will say... And maybe this suggests that I do care about the competitive integrity. Have you seen the the bracket, the bracket for the Derby? Yeah, and I'm sort of sad that Shohei's <laughs> going up against Juan Soto in the first round because right. I don't want to root against Juan Soto, but I'm gonna have to. I'm of the opinion that there are four, there are two tiers of boppers in this Derby, mm-hmm. and one tier of boppers involves Otani, Soto, Pete Alonso, and Joey Gallo. Right. Yeah. And then there's the second tier of boppers, which involves everyone else. And I think that you have to separate. There needs to be a representative from each tier of bopper in each 
part of the bracket so that yeah. you maximize the potential for Big Bopper versus v- Big Bopper. That's hard to say in <laughs> in the finals, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that they should have swapped Juan Soto for one of either Matt Olson or Trey Mancini. And mm-hmm. so you would have had each corner held down by a big bopper. And granted, all of these guys can hit big home runs. And in cores with no humidor, they can hit the biggest home runs. They might mm-hmm. hit the biggest home runs you've ever seen. They might tear a hole through the Rocky Mountains. But I don't think that this bracket is perfectly optimized for for bop. I think that yeah. you could bop harder than it <laughs> is currently set up to bop for. And yeah. so they should they should switch it and and let and let it be bopped to its maximum potential. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that second quibble. Not that I guess I think of Soto as the biggest bopper. He is a big bopper. Yes. But I don't think of him as hitting the longest and farthest home runs, although he is certainly capable of doing that. But I enjoy watching Juan Soto. I guess the silver lining is that hopefully we will be watching Juan Soto for many, many, many years to come and hopefully many home run derbies. So there's that. Right. And it's not as if I want to be rooting against Trey Mancini either. Oh, That's no. a, a great story that he is healthy and homering again. Yeah. And all of these guys are likable. And I know that Trevor Story is the hometown hero and he won't be for much longer. So enjoy him while you can. So there are things to recommend each of of these entrants. But yeah, I would not be sorry if, say, Matt Olson were going up against uh, Shohei Otani. And, you know, no offense to Matt Olson, but he probably has the lowest Q rating of anyone in here, or at least in terms of, you know, people I'm excited to see. Like, he hits a lot of dingers and he hits some long ones. So he is very deserving of, of being here. But I agree, the the bracket could be a little bit better. As for the first quibble, there is also the spectator aspect of things. Like, don't you want to be able to admire the full home run trajectory without being distracted because you have to go look back at the swing because there might be another home run commencing? Like, it it might be fun and chaotic to have, like, multiple home runs in the air at any one time. But also, sometimes it's nice to just take a second to admire the moonshot. I know, but I I have a lot of anxiety about the person who throws batting practice during the home run derby. (laughs) Uh And so maybe my issue is just that I think that they should be pitching. They should be hitting off a pitching machine, perhaps. Like, maybe that's Mm. my problem. I know that there's there are all these heartwarming stories about his dad threw him you know pitches during the home run derby but i sit there and worry about familial strife when those happen because sometimes the dads (laughs) are too slow or like they're you know their command isn't great right and so then there are fewer opportunities for a hittable pitch and so you're right the issue is not it landing it's that having to wait for it to land introduces the potential for greater delay when I already have anxiety around delay. So Mm -hmm. maybe really what I'm advocating for is the replacement of humans by robots, which is a very strange (laughs) stance for me. But I just sit there and I'm like, throw it better. I I want a home run. And I can't yell at someone's dad. They picked him. There's something to be said for the recovery time for the hitter, too. I guess that's true. Taking that many hacks can be tiring. Not that I'm a subscriber to the home run derby curse hypothesis, but I think that within a single round, if you are just taking hack after hack after hack with no break between hacks, then that might tire you out faster, which might mean fewer dingers or 
dingers that don't travel as far. And it's in everyone's interest to have as many giant dingers as possible. Right. Yeah. You want, you want big, you want the biggest boppers. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so let's do some emails. Old-fashioned email show here. Just emails and nothing but emails and the little bit of banter we've already done. So this is uh, an email response to something we discussed recently, which was the idea of a hitter coaching visit. So a a coach paying a visit to a hitter, like mid-inning, mid-plate appearance, the way that coaches will pay visits to pitchers. And Anthony writes in to say, not sure if anyone's already mentioned this, but the hitting coach visit scenario discussed on a recent episode happens frequently in college baseball. Teams get offensive conferences where the hitting team's coach can call timeout and visit with the batter for about a minute. I think it's basically just a waste of time, mostly used when the opposing pitcher is on a roll as an attempt to get him out of his rhythm. The only time I ever saw it used in the middle of a plate appearance was a situation where a bunt was a possibility given the base out state. Can't remember who it was specifically that did this. The hitter swung at the first pitch and the coach immediately called time and ran to have a conversation with the hitter. The broadcasters and I assumed the hitter missed the bunt sign, but on the next pitch, the hitter swung away again. The point, I believe, was to try to trick the defense into overcommitting to playing the bunt on the second pitch. Didn't matter. The hitter struck out, but it was at least kind of creative. <laughs> but can't you can't you establish the game plan for that kind of chicanery in advance? Like it doesn't require a guy going out there because yeah. you can just you can just signal like act like you're gonna bunt and then and then not. Mm-hmm. I would think so. Yeah. yeah, this does not make me more inclined to watch college baseball. This email from oh, Anthony. I don't know how often this happens, but <laughs> I've seen this very rarely. I can't think of a single time I've actually seen it. But I don't think you should let it put you off of college baseball because, at least for me, my tolerance for attempts at strategic nonsense go up when the uh, the overall level of quality of play goes down because you're mm. understanding it within the realm of like you're trying to eke out whatever advantage you can you can muster and sometimes you're you're dealing with kids who you know like they they struggle to like field the ball cleanly sometimes and the quality of receiving is highly variable and candidly the just the quality of play is highly variable so you're like ah those kids they're trying to figure it out you know you're 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 much more patient with it but at the big league level you'd be like this is this is exhausting like consulting stuff stop it It just has a very different flavor in college ball. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Ben, a Patreon supporter. I'm a Cardinals fan and find my broadcast team basically unlistenable. I would gladly part with something of value to get Jason Benetti and Steve Stone or Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser when I'm flipping through non-cards game options on MLB TV. I first consider the quality of the booth. I look forward to the series against the Mets and Dodgers and Giants so that I can listen to the other broadcast. I could describe why I don't like our guys, but who cares? My real question, is it idiotic that I would trade on the field war for a better booth? I think it isn't, mostly because I doubt that White Sox Nation would accept my offer, Tommy Edmond and his likely 1.5 FWAR season for their TV booth in perpetuity. I vaguely recall a drafter ranking of the broadcast teams deep in the Effectively Wild archives, but I think it's worth a revisit, perhaps with listener polling. Would you trade a player, his production and contract for a broadcast team? And what would your price be for your own team? 
how does this change as you become more competitive than the Cardinals currently are? And this is Ooh. an exercise that Ben Clemens went through yes, last year, right? and he was revisiting a Carson Sestouli joint. Right. Yes, the radio and TV broadcast ratings. So you can find those relatively recent at Fangraphs. I will link to those. But... This is something that I mentioned in a recent episode and have been thinking about just because I've been watching so much of one team, the Angels, and so the quality of the broadcast booth has stuck out to me in a way that it typically doesn't because usually if I'm just flipping between games or flipping between teams, it just it doesn't make that much difference to me. I, I know the best booths and I look forward to hearing them, but... Most of them are kind of interchangeable for me. I haven't formed a super strong impression of them. And if I'm just channel changing, like I'm probably not paying that close attention to the broadcast or to the commentary at least. And maybe it's even muted at times. Apologies to any broadcasters who are listening and would be offended by that. But it really matters the most, I think, when you're watching one team and one crew day after day after day. And when you're in that situation, as I assume most fans and and baseball viewers are, it matters a lot, I think. So I don't think it's uh, at all strange to say that you would sacrifice some on-field value for some off-the-field value when it comes to the broadcast. I don't think that that's silly at all. I think that the importance of the booth is sort of directly proportional to two things. First, as you mentioned, the frequency with which you're watching it. So if it is your hometown team and you're going to spend just, you know, potentially three hours most days with these folks for an entire season, like that's a lot of your life to be sitting there saying, wow, this guy reminds me of an annoying patron at a bar. So I think it's, I think it's very important there. Although I will say on average, I think that I think that most booths are serviceable. I do think that there are booths where the low of the lows is like really low, right? Where they Uh have moments where you're just like, come on, this is ridiculous. I can't believe you're saying that either because sometimes because they're saying something legitimately problematic in like a social way. But also sometimes if, especially if you're an analytically inclined fan, sometimes the drumbeat of I wish baseball were different and like it used to be can can get pretty tiresome. So I think mm-hmm. there's there's the the frequency with which you're tuning into the broadcast and then I think there's there's the importance of the booth relative to team quality. And I actually think that good booths are more important for bad teams than they are for good teams. Yeah. Because if you are watching a good baseball team, it almost doesn't matter <laughs> what mm-hmm. they're saying in the booth because everything's going well, right? You're you're on top of the world. Like the thing you're worried about are are injuries, but your your team is winning. They're in the lead in your division. They're playoff bound. Your problems come in October. You're not worried about what's happening right now. You're you're riding high, right? Because you're you're a fan of a good baseball team. Congratulations. If you're a fan of a bad baseball team, you just have so much suck you have to fill, right? Like <laughs> yep. there's just so much bad play that you have to manage to contextualize in some some way that makes you want to come back and watch the team again. Mm-hmm. And I think the ability to make a broadcast impressive and, and really sing when the product on the field is is only so-so is the mark of a really talented broadcaster. And I think Benetti is a really great example of this, right? There have been times where he has been in the booth and the, the White Sox have not been especially good. 
And I've still wanted to watch White Sox games because I just yep. like listen to that guy talk about baseball. So mm-hmm. I think that as the team improves, your appetite to trade away players to get a better booth diminishes. And not just because you're like, hey, I, I want, you know, my team is is a contender. It's in the race. I can't be, you know, giving away wins. But you're also just like not really that bothered about it. So. Yeah, right. And I think if your team is bad, it can also be kind of cathartic to have a crew that will call out the team now and then, you know, not in like a a mean way, but just pointing out the flaws, pointing out the weaknesses, maybe criticizing the way that the team is constructed at times like the Mets crew is is the go to example of just, you know, best in class in, in all ways, really. But even when the Mets are, are not having a great game, they're fun because those guys will criticize Mets players or Mets management at times. And they will be, I don't want to say unbiased, but you know, it's not like they're complete homers. Certainly they're far from it. And also they're just fun to hang out with. So if you're getting blown out or if it's just a meaningless game, you still tune in just to hear the banter and and listen to these friends who have good chemistry and have been together for a long time. So I think that is completely correct. And I would also say, as you seem to say, that I think most broadcasts don't materially detract from or enhance my enjoyment of the game all that much you know there there's kind of like a vast middle where it's fine it's competent it sounds like a baseball broadcast and it doesn't make me perk up and say what did he just say that didn't make any sense (laughs) that was bad so it just kind of sails by and it's professional sounding and it's fine so it's just a minority of booths that really just level up everything or drag it down. And uh, I'm sure people can come up with examples of, of both of those. But even when it comes to stat stuff, like I don't need that much stat stuff from my broadcast. I've always said, like, I just don't want misinformation or right. misleading information. Like, you know, don't feed me small samples as if they mean something or just give me just things that give you the wrong impression of something in a very statistically unrigorous way. So I don't need you to be quoting WRC plus or WOBA or whatever. If you do and you can work it in, well, that's fine. But if you're familiar with those principles and that kind of guides the way you talk, I don't need you to throw those specific acronyms out there. I can always look them up if I want to. So yeah, I I think that is right. And I think that Ben is also right to want the best broadcast booth that he can. It, It really can make a You know what I really miss as a feature on MLB TV? What? I miss the park audio feature. Why is there park audio back? We got people in the park. I understood not having park audio last year because, well, one, there weren't fans there, so it was sort of eerie and quiet. And then when it wasn't eerie and quiet, you could hear players swearing, which I would have signed up for, but I think the decision (laughs) was probably rightly made that we were going to hear too much of them on a normal TV broadcast anyway, and so they did away with park audio. But they should bring it back because now the park is back and it feels so nice when you're sitting there and it sounds the way that it's supposed to. And for folks who are still at home, you know, they shouldn't be denied that that same experience just because they're not at the park. So bring back park audio, I say. I miss park audio. Yeah, me too. It's just nice to have it on as background noise without the distraction of the commentary at times. Take a little nap on a Saturday to park audio. That's a Mm -hmm. good day. Yeah. All right, John, Patreon supporter, says, If the All-Star game was designed as an entry point for casual fans, 
All stars should get a star on their uniform or cap, like how Gold Glove winners get a special patch. Maybe it's a special patch each year, or guys get a star with a number on it for the number of appearances. Either way would make it easier to tune in casually and say, ah, he must be our big guy. And he means not in the All-Star game where everyone is an All-Star, but in regular season games where you would have some marker, some indication on the uniform that this guy is or was an All-Star. I like that very much. Like, I I think that that is a very, that's a very good idea for a couple of reasons. One, I do think that, as we've talked about before, highlighting who is good to fans who are newer is, I think, a good thing to do because you should just make a lot of different entry points to the game for folks who are newer to it. And Mm -hmm. I also think it's nice for the guys on the field. Like, we've talked about this before. I don't get, I don't get all that worked up about all-star voting anymore. Like, I... Like, I generally think it's fine. I thought that the Sears stuff was fine. Like, I, mm-hmm. I think that it was silly that Mike Trout was a starter because he's been injured for a long time. But, like, the backups were good, so it, mm-hmm. it didn't end up mattering. Like, I think that in general, we don't tend to have, like, totally outrageous snubs anymore. But I do think that it really matters to the players. Like, they take a lot of pride in having been an all-star and being able to say that that is a thing they have accomplished. And so I think having a little indicator on their uniform, I like the idea of a star and then, like, the number ticks up each year as they potentially accumulate more appearances. Mm Because I I don't know that we need to have, like, the Ohio State, like, sticker football helmet phenomena. That, like, that seems seems silly to me. That always looks funny. They also look like they have – marijuana leaves on the back of their helmets, which is not an original observation on my part, but it's a thing that I just find funny every single time I end up watching them. So I think that that gets crowded. And and as we noted on our caps episode, like I don't think we need more cluttered caps. Like it's fine mm-hmm. to have fewer patches, but I think a patch like on the side of the cap that has a star and the number in it, it's just like a nice thing. Cause then you're like, look at, look at my trout with a mm-hmm. s- special star on his hat. I think it's nice. (laughs) Yeah, I like it too. We've talked about like whether they should actually award stars of the game the way that they do in hockey, and I'm in favor of that. Yeah. And I'm also in favor of this because when I was a casual hockey fan as a kid and getting into the NHL, I found it helpful that a lot of the good players had C's and A's on their jerseys for captain and alternate captain. And I thought that was kind of cool. It was, you know, I would try to like memorize, okay, who's the captain of this team and the alternate captain of this team, and it would rotate around a bit. And in hockey, there are actual roles for captains or alternate captains. You know, they do certain things. They are the people appointed to talk to referees about rulings and that sort of thing. And I don't think you need that in baseball. It's always sort of silly when you have captains. I mean, some teams occasionally have captains, but I don't think we need every baseball team to have a captain necessarily. But I think it would be nice, especially because in baseball, You have players at certain positions who may or may not have the ball hit at them, and you have players who are batting in certain positions in the order, and they may or may not come up at the important times. And so you can't tell who the good players are based on how they're used necessarily the way that you can in say the NBA where you you give the best player the ball when you want to score so it doesn't work that way in baseball and so it might be helpful to have this visual indicator of oh this guy's good and I also remember when I was getting into baseball as a fan too and into baseball card collecting 
I was sort of obsessed with all-stars, right? Because you'd have like often special designations on baseball cards for all-stars or I would like sort them and do the research and figure out, is this guy an all-star? Was this guy never ever an all-star? And so I would have like special binders just for all-stars or, you know, special pages where the all-stars would be clustered. And I thought it was a really special thing. And of course, at that time, I didn't realize that not all all-stars are actually great or even having great seasons. And sometimes the voting is sort of strange and players end up there without being elite. But I think that it's still kind of cool. And as you said, players care about it and they'd probably care about it even more if they got to wear a star around all the time. And if you could collect stars and, you know, you'd have Albert Pujols, whose uh, Chester back would just be littered with yeah. stars at this point in his career. That'd be yeah. kind of cool, I think. So I like that. And I, I don't know, maybe... In these days where the All-Star game is just an exhibition and there's not as much cachet to it and there are so many All-Stars because players opt not to play and they're injured and then other guys get to be All-Stars. I don't know if there should be special designations for like All-Star starters. Maybe sure. you would get a, a special logo or yeah, different colored star. Like right. You get a, a gold star if you're a starter and yeah. you get a silver star if you're a, a reserve or an injury replacement. We don't need to right. distinguish between the reserves and the injury replacement. They're all mm-hmm. good. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, so something like that. I think that that'd be kind of nice, a little hierarchy there where you could have some representation of that and then players would take it seriously and maybe fans would take the voting seriously. Mm-hmm. That's the other, you know, it's it's obviously it's not unbiased voting and you have uh, fan bases that stuff the ballot boxes, the the virtual digital ballot boxes and they're encouraged to do that and maybe that's even part of the fun of it in some ways. So you know, you would have to take it with a grain of salt, of course, but I still think it would be sort of fun and nice. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that a lack of fan enthusiasm is the problem with the All-Star process. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's been snubbed. Mm-hmm. All of them. I think that's not true. All right. This one is a little weird and a little deep and philosophical, so pretty on brand for us. Dan says, I've been thinking lately about a Ted Chang story. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom and the implications its ideas would have regarding baseball and fandom in real life. The spoiler-free premise of the story is this. When a choice is made, it creates a new universe, branching off of one's own, so that there is one universe where the alternate choice was made. The story invents a device called a prism, in which people can temporarily glimpse into other branches. Eventually, each prism runs out of storage and can no longer be used. Over time, even small divergences like weather can create tremendous differences. The story contains a sports-specific passage I want to call attention to. In the private sector, entrepreneurs realized that while the information obtained from prisms had limited instrumental value, it was something that could be sold as content to consumers. A new kind of data broker emerged. A company would exchange news about current events with its parallel versions and sell the information to subscribers. Sports news and celebrity gossip were the easiest to sell. People were often just as interested in what their favorite stars did in other branches as in what they did in their own. Hardcore sports fans collected information from multiple branches and argued about which team had the best overall performance and whether that was more important than their performance in any individual branch. Maybe I just want an excuse to talk about this story more, but I do have some specific questions I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Do you think fans would actually care about their team's performance in other timelines? 
Would a heartbreaking World Series loss feel better or worse if it went differently in another one? Would we use the aggregate results of all known timelines to assess team or player value instead of just our own? Might a player's performance in another timeline impact their free agent value or treatment in this one, such as through significantly better or worse performance or injury history? Would we have cared about things like the World Series droughts of the Red Sox or Cubs if there were timelines where they weren't so significant? Would players use their results in other timelines to influence their training and approach in this one? Are there other interesting implications I'm not thinking of? My instinct is that players and executives would not take much interest. Useful information such as player development would take a long time to see, at which point too many other changes might be able to explain the difference in outcome. Maybe a slumping player would see an idea for a swing adjustment or something, but players' resistance to things like analytics has me questioning how common that would be. So this is kind of your classic multiverse alternate timeline scenario. Every decision, every event causes a a branching off universe where something different happens. So in this scenario, would we care about what was happening to players and teams in all of those other multiverses? Oh, boy. I think we would just be overwhelmed with how many there are. I think we would be too overwhelmed by how many alternate universes there are to really fixate on any one result that we might see, right? Like, think about how many individual decisions there are in just one baseball game. Just one baseball game, right? And some of those decisions going differently wouldn't necessarily yield different results, right? Like, you would, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not as if, you know, if you're a pitcher and you decide to throw a breaking ball instead of a fastball in a particular at-bat that, you know, the the automatic alternate universe result is a home run instead of an outright. Like that's not the way that this would necessarily work. But I think that even though some number of those alternate universes would end up looking relatively similar to what we have just by virtue of the fact that not every different decision is going to yield a tremendously different result, that we would just get overwhelmed by it. And can we see it? Do we have a means to see it in this <laughs> yeah. story? Well, there's the, the prism, this device where you can right, get prism. a glimpse into these other universes. Although right. I guess you can't see into all of them at, at all times, presumably. Yeah. So, and see for how long, right? Like, are you able mm-hmm. to watch a different game seven in, in its entirety? Or do you just see the moment where your team emerges victorious rather than than getting beat and also are they even playing the same other team do you have the same emotional experience of pain or or joy in the alternate universe like or the you know because our experience of things tends to be uh, built over time you know and so if other points along the chain end up being different i don't know that our experience of it is quite the same as it as it would be mm-hmm. otherwise yeah No, I I was thinking along the same lines, like if you had two universes, like if it was a a scenario like the Amazon Prime show counterpart, which I really like and recommend where they're just two identical worlds that splinter off from each other and things diverge from there. And so if you had the Earth MLB and then you had the Bizarro Earth MLB or Earth 2 MLB or whatever, and you just had two then I would be interested in, hey, what's going on in the other league? It, it would basically be like having four leagues instead of two, I guess, almost. And I would want to know, like, did this guy's career work out better in, in that timeline? Or did this team do better in that timeline? But this scenario just sounds overwhelming. As you said, it just sounds like there are so many 
that I'm not sure I could care about sports (laughs) or anything. (laughs) It seems like it would make everything meaningless to me because when we watch MLB now, when we watch baseball, we're aware that we're only seeing one simulation essentially. And, you know, when we run the projection systems and the playoff odds and all of that, you're doing thousands of simulations. And we know that in this simulation, things work out this way. And in that simulation, things work out that way. And we only get the one. And that's the one that we care about and that counts. And we treat it almost as if, you know, that's the the only thing that could have happened because what's the point of even speculating? But If you have this scenario where you just have like infinite universes where everything is happening, how could you even care about your own, really? It would seem so insignificant. It would seem so arbitrary. Why do I care about the results in this one universe as opposed to all of these others? I think it would sort of expose the artifice here that that we only get to run these things one time. And so that counts, but we know how much randomness factors into all of this and all the little decisions that are made that could change everything in sliding doors ways. So I think I would like totally lose my curiosity because not only would I not be able to keep up with every other universe, but it would sort of make my own universe seem insignificant. I don't know if I would go that far, if only because I, my experience of baseball is that it is the cumulative effect of very small changes and choices. And so it being radically different in other places feels instinctively correct to me, right? That those small choices going differently can sometimes have a very meaningful impact. But generally, I think we're best served when we're spending our time sort of grappling with the the choices that are in front of us. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't think that it would change. I just don't think that it would change much in terms of your emotional experience. It would sort of be a fun exercise in like potentially seeing every, you know, 10% percentile bucket on a projection though. So like that might be a little bit fun, right? Where you're like in the multiverse where, you know, a bad player is suddenly playing up to his 90th percentile projection and you're like, wow, that's what mm-hmm. that would look like. That's pretty cool. I don't know that it would have any real benefit to you, though, because even if you're the player or the team that he plays for, because presumably a lot of other things have happened in that in that multiverse that might be very, very different, and you might be too far along in your own decision tree to sort of go back and affect change that would result in you being that 90th percentile projection. Mm-hmm. So maybe it would just be torturous, really, not even <laughs> just depriving the existing world you have of meaning, but also just kind of mocking you for, you know, the 10 small decisions or twists of fate that didn't happen the way they needed to for you to suddenly be like an all-star instead of a scrub. Maybe it's just really a mean thing. I mean, I guess it's it's reassuring to know that things can be different than they are uh, in one way or the other. But if if you're looking at the life that you want but can't have because you're not in that multiverse, sounds kind of miserable. Yeah, I I was thinking initially that Dan Zimborski would love this, right? Right. Because he could plug (laughs) all of these universes into Zips, but then maybe we wouldn't even need Zips. We wouldn't need projection systems because we would essentially have infinite seasons for everyone. So you would know everyone's true talent really beyond the shadow of a doubt. And so there just wouldn't be much uncertainty left. And 
I don't know. I think about this sometimes even with, you know, our actual fictional properties that involve multiverses and those can be kind of cool sometimes, but also sometimes it's hard to maintain the stakes if there's always just another universe and a character dies and you can just bring them back because they're still alive in another universe. It's like, you know, you have to have some kind of consequences at some point. And so I think that would bother me in this scenario, at least when it comes to baseball, because I don't know, would a, a championship drought mean as much maybe it would still be as significant if you knew that it it wasn't happening in most other universes and in yours it was it would make you feel even more cursed and unlucky so there are ways in which i suppose it could enhance your enjoyment but i think it would mostly detract from mine it is true that like this would be a huge benefit in terms of like player evaluation and if you are in one universe where a player is underperforming and you know that in all these other universes that player had way better seasons then you could snap up that player and wait for the bounce back although i guess all the other gms also know that too unless they don't get to look through the prism also so there would be huge competitive advantages there if you could just data mine all of the other universes and and collect this information. I guess this would be great for the sports betting industry. An infinite number of events to bet on. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But yeah, I, I don't know. It would be pretty fascinating, I guess, to see that in some of these universes, like the all-time greats would not have been great. And in other universes, you would probably get scrubs who turned into all-time greats. And so some of those like what-if scenarios, if you could actually look up the alternate outcomes, that that would be kind of cool initially. Like how good would Brian Taylor have been if he didn't get into that bar fight? But again, it's infinite. I think the novelty would wear off. Yeah, I think you'd be overwhelmed. Hey, Ben, before we mm-hmm. go on to our next email, can yeah. I, it's not breaking news, but can I cut in with a, a live bit of feedback from the Fangraph Slack? Oh, sure. And you can tell me, you can tell me, I will admit something that I think will probably not surprise our listeners. I don't listen back to our podcast every single time. And so <laughs> I don't know all the players you named as potential highlight value, low war value guys. So maybe mm-hmm. you've already mentioned this, but John Becker suggests Brendan Ryan. Oh, yeah. No, I I haven't mentioned Which him. Which yeah. I think is a supremely good suggestion. Um yeah. and fits very nicely in like the, you know, one particular part of your skill set is so outsized good compared to the rest, right? So like he was just a, a terrible hitter. Really mm-hmm. quite bad. Had years where he was close to a full-time guy and was dramatically under league average from a WRC plus perspective. One of the best shortstop defenders that I have ever watched. And so I think that Brendan Ryan, I'd like to sub him in. I'd like to sub John's very good suggestion in for my small niche suggestion, which really came down to like two plays. Um, This Mm -hmm. is a much better one (laughs) in the spirit of the exercise. And so uh, I think that we should put Brendan Ryan to the committee as as a possibility here. Yeah, that's a good one, too. We've gotten a couple emails from listeners while we've been recording this about other suggestions that were not Ray Ordonez. Juan Lagares is another oh, kind yeah, of, that's, that's you know, good. yeah, he saved a, a homer for Shohei the pitcher this week. So uh, feeling good about him. But that's like in the same category of yeah. great 
glove guy, at least at times, makes spectacular plays and just hasn't hit all that much. And got another email from a listener named Michael who tried to use some StatCast data and look up StatCast five and four star catches and actually create a, a ratio of those catches to Fangraph's war. And he suggested maybe also using the number of highlights videos on YouTube, although I guess there would be an era effect there. But, sure. you know, he came up with others like that, Adam Engel. Guillermo Heredia, Victor Robles, Keon Broxton, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I guess that's one category of this kind of guy, just the the great glove no-hit type guy who might rob some homers and, and make some great leaps and has great range but just can't get on base. Yeah. Mm. All right. Question from Matt. Your discussion of the banging scheme longevity popped a couple of questions into my head. Over the last couple of decades, there have been a few cheating scandals with varying degrees of public outrage, sticky stuff, banging scheme, other sign-stealing stuff, steroids and HEH, and amphetamines. And I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple of questions. Which of these cheating schemes just bothers you the most on a gut level? Which of these had the greatest impact in helping the cheaters get better than they would have been otherwise? The general public outrage seems to be that steroids was worse then banging, sticky stuff, other sign-stealing, and then amphetamines. Why do you think the different forms of cheating resulted in such varied levels of outrage? That's a really excellent question. Mm -hmm. I think that part of why... So, like, steroids and the banging scheme stand out to me as the ones that have seemed to generate the most public outcry and sort of disgust. And I think that when it comes to the banging scheme, the proximity of that in relation to them winning a World Series plays a big part in it. Yeah. And I think that we've we've talked before about the research suggesting that like the positive impact to offensive performance in that year might have been more limited than we might have assumed given the extreme risk mm-hmm. and the consequences that they were potentially incurring by doing so and which they ended up incurring, right? So, you know, we can, I think, kind of debate whether or not that team would have won a World Series without the benefit of the banging scheme. But I think because it came so close to a championship it it really rankled people. And I think that, you know, you also have to take into account sort of the general feeling around the industry toward the Astros for any number of reasons that didn't have anything to do with the banging scheme. So I think that like a lot in public life, our reaction to moments like that is at least in some part dictated by the sort of existing level of either affection or animus we feel for the parties involved. Mm-hmm. So there's that part of it. And then I think for steroids, I think part of why it you know, it was just, it felt like so much of the sport was tainted. And I also think that part of our reaction to that has something to do with sort of how much we all felt we should have known earlier that it was going on, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. like you looked at those guys and you're like, oh, well, he's maybe juicing (laughs) Mm -hmm. because he was slight and now he's you know like a demigod and that seems Mm -hmm. weird that a a guy could do that so late in his life right Mm -hmm. without the assistance of steroids and so part of i think the the feeling there is not just the betrayal of so many guys who were so beloved being participants in something that that felt so unsavory and felt so widespread but also that like we should have we should have known and so mm-hmm. part of our reaction is also embarrassment. 
yeah, I think. There's a little bit of <laughs> we were bamboozled or yeah, we, we were, were naive. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel this outrage on a very visceral level personally. Like I I know that these things are, are ethically wrong and you shouldn't do them, but I'm also just maybe I'm I'm jaded, maybe I'm cynical. <laughs> I don't know. I just assume that when there's a lot at stake and a lot of incentive to do this sort of stuff that it's gonna happen and that it basically has always happened in one way or another and it's kind of always been part of baseball and so I just I tend not to let it ruin the sport for me that much which isn't to say that I think anything goes and, and it should all be legalized and also like I think back to the PD era and well I liked watching peak bonds and I like the 1998 home run race I have really fond memories of those times and it's partly just because I was in that age sweet spot that we talked about last week during that era. And those were my formative years as a fan. And I grew to love baseball then. And so I love it in its entirety with the flaws that it had. I guess I'm most offended by anything that could come with some health risk the yeah. way that steroids, HGH, you know, a, a lot of that stuff maybe has some risks that if used the wrong way or were abused, that there could be real costs to that and maybe have been real costs to that. And the fact that a lot of players may have felt pressured to do those things just to keep up with other players who were doing them, I think that is bad. Like that bothers me even more, I think, than the way that it may have distorted the game on the field. I think one reason why the outrage is, is so great over PDs is because stats are so sacred in baseball yeah. and people feel like it ruined the record books and it tainted everything and now we can't have fun with home run chases and the all-time home run leader, it, it's uh, tainted and the single season home run leader, it's tainted and that whole era is tainted and as I've said I think that's sort of exaggerated. I don't think it was all PEDs, but certainly in the case of some outliers who come to mind immediately, it certainly seems to have had a significant effect there. And that absolutely has changed the record books and skewed things subsequently. So maybe I just kind of take things as they come, at least when it pertains to like on the field stuff and stats. And, you know, ultimately it is just a game, although it matters because we all care about it and ascribe importance to it. So I think probably that is at the top for me more so probably because of like the health risks and the peer pressure than even what it did to stats. And then, the other stuff, you know, I guess I'd put banging scheme above your basic standard sign stealing that's gone on since time immemorial, but sign stealing has been such a staple since the 19th century, and that was just kind of a particularly brazen example of it that I'm not convinced actually was all that advantageous. So I would have said that sticky stuff was a bigger deal, but I'm not sure if that's the case based on what we've seen over the past few weeks. Yeah. Still inconclusive, but not sure how much that changed the game. And I think also the level of outrage is in some proportion to how many people are perceived to be doing it or like right. how many people become the, the focal point of the cheating. So the Astros were the banging scheme team. PDs, maybe the use was widespread, but certain individual players became, became the face of it. Yeah, the faces of that and yeah. the targets of all of the vitriol. 
Whereas with sticky stuff, you know, yeah, there have been a, a few pitchers who have been more closely associated with it than others. But its use, at least if you're going by the letter of the law, seems to have been so rampant that it's hard to single out any particular person. And as for amphetamines, like obviously there can be some health risks associated with that too, I guess. People are generally less offended by that, I think, because they think of PDs or HGH as like enhancing your natural baseline whereas like amphetamines is just restoring you to your natural baseline sort of when you're below that which is kind of arbitrary and you know we've talked before about how blurry the line can be between legal enhancement and illegal enhancement and what's the difference between LASIK and taking this legal supplement and then taking this illegal supplement it's all making you better but we draw a line somewhere and I guess the thought is that Greenies maybe helps you a little less than PDs, although we don't definitely know that that's the case for all players. Right. And I think part of it is that we, you know, like we learn not just as fans, but like as as media members, we learn from how we talk about this stuff. I think part of part of why the response to sticky stuff was more muted than steroids was because you know there were a couple there are a couple of players who I think are more like strongly associated with the use of sticky stuff than others but yep. I think we also learned from the way that we talked about the steroid era and I think we're better as a group at identifying sort of how the enforcement environment that you're living in impacts usage and and trying to navigate how those things interact with one another in a way that's more responsible and kind of holds all parties accountable to the extent that they should be. And so some of it is that, and I think that tends to temper our understanding of the severity of those things, and that in turn tempers the way that fans interact with them, right? Which isn't to say that they can't come to their own conclusions, but I do think the the general tone that the baseball media takes to this stuff does impact the way that it gets talked about among, you know, more casual observers who aren't, you know, baseball people in yeah. a professional sense. So that stuff matters too. And I also think that, you know, because we just talk about a about the social context that the game exists in, in a more, I hope, thoughtful and and sort of inclusive way than we used to. I think it also puts some of these on-field scandals into some amount of perspective relative to other issues that the game still has to address, right? Whether it's minor league pay or um, abuses in the international market or uh, the way that the league deals with harassment. So I think some of it too is just that we have a different perspective on the relative severity of these things, which again, I, I like you, don't say to to suggest that people who were really exercised about them were wrong to feel that way, right? But just that they exist in a more sort of textured landscape, I think, than they used to, and that mm-hmm. informs how we react to them too. All right, maybe we can do one or two more here. Jeff in San Francisco says. In episode 1714, Ben shared his experience of watching Shohei Otani face the Yankees in person for his and his wife's 10th anniversary. The image I have in my mind is Ben wearing an Otani t-shirt while watching him face the team he rooted for as a child. That is, in fact, what happened. (laughs) As baseball writers, both of you have had to abandon fandom for specific teams. However, you have numerous adopted sons that you root for as individual (laughs) players. This can range from stars like Mike Trout to personal favorites like William Sastadio. My question is, how many of your adopted sons would have to be on the same team before you'd admit to rooting for that team? 
having all your adopted sons on the same team would probably mean you'd be watching that team more than all others on a regular basis. Genuine fandom of that team should theoretically spawn from sheer exposure. The rationale is simply that the team's success would be the result of the cumulative success of your adopted son's individual success. The answer is obviously not two, because both Trout and Otani play for the Angels. Alternatively, how many Otani-like players would have to be on the same team before you'd admit to being a fan of that team? Will your answer be affected if your adopted son played for the teams you rooted for growing up? Oh, man. (laughs) Oh. I'm trying to imagine what the multiverse where Otani is a mariner <laughs> looks like and how mm-hmm. that, what kind of weird fan monster that turns me into. <laughs> like, does that sustain? Because I, I don't think that I'm speaking out of turn when I say that, like, we're not, we, we aren't looking at fandom like, oh, we, we have a professional obligation to eschew fandom. Like, I don't, I don't think we're coming at it from quite that place. I think that there's mm-hmm. been a more natural sort of like fading away of that kind of emotional investment in a particular team because you know you're you're covering the whole league and you do want to critically engage with the entirety of the league not just 29 teams and yep. you're you know you're you're just once it's a job your relationship to the whole enterprise changes not just the team that you grew up rooting for and so i don't think that we're the the people who are like ah there's like a an insurmountable bias that comes from being a fan that we could never do our jobs well or objectively it's just like the mere fact of doing our jobs does create some some distance. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's an important thing to say. And that's probably why my answer to this question is like it would take th- maybe exactly three, right? Uh-huh. One more than Trout and Otani. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe the number is like five if it's a Trout and an Otani and then three like folk hero type players that are who are objectively right. much less good but still dear to us as as adopted sons for some, you know, weird funny reason that that we would get obsessed with. So I, I think that the exact makeup of it would matter a lot. And I also do think that that some of it is dictated by exactly where they are in their competitive window. Like this might be a, a counterintuitive thing, but I actually think that three Otani like players on a losing team, I'd have a much easier time saying like I am a fan of that team, both because it would be emotionally familiar to me, <laughs> and because the the risk of like me being again like a crazy fan monster in October when a lot more people are paying attention. <laughs> Much uh-huh. much lower, right? Like I, I'm just I'm very safe in September. I just get to sit there and be proud of my sons and say, "Go, Mariners, <laughs> Otani." Oh, now I'm yeah. sad. Now I'm sad. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy for him that he got to be where he wanted to be. Like that's the way that it should be for all of these guys. I wish that every player in baseball had the ability to determine his own path the way that Otani had. Mm-hmm. But I'm sad now. He'd look so good in that in that Mariners Navy. He'd look good in anything. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But I mean, writers root for things to happen. Sure. They root for individual players. They root for teams, whether because they don't want to rewrite their lead on deadline or because, I don't know, that player has been nice to them or, or they've enjoyed covering them or it's just a good story. You root for good stories. And sometimes one team winning is a better story, at least in sort of a, a neutral, objective way. And so it's not as if 
we have to just maintain our rigid journalistic objectivity right. at all times, which is really just kind of a, a myth and a construct to begin with. The right. idea that any of us can be completely objective about anything or that the media should just be both sidesing everything and never taking a stand or expressing an opinion or holding an opinion, you know, that's a, kind of a, a distortion of, I think, the journalistic ethos. But it's something that has occurred to me because, like, I clearly like Shohei Otani a lot. I'm rooting for Shohei Otani. I'm a fan of Shohei Otani. I guess it's fair to say. Yeah. I'm also covering Shohei Otani. Like, right. I talk about him on this podcast. I write about him from time to time. I'm not covering him as a beat writer and, and talking to him regularly or anything like that. But, uh, you know, I'm kind of at a, a remove in a way. And there are a lot of great writers who still are fans of teams to some extent or cover the team that they grew up rooting for. And I think it's possible to be pretty objective, at least in the ways that matter, you know, in terms of like player and team evaluation. I think you can juggle both of those things. It is possible. I would be wary of seeming like so in the tank for a team or a player that my readers or listeners questioned like the accuracy of my information, right. you know, if they thought that I were just so biased that I weren't giving them a fair or accurate reading of the situation, then that would be bad. That would set off alarm bells in my mind. So I don't want to come off that way about Otani. It's just like, if you can't appreciate what Otani's doing and enjoy what he's doing and want him to keep doing it, then what are you even doing here? I mean, what's the point of covering baseball or paying attention to baseball if you can't celebrate someone who's doing something like this? And if anything, I, I think taking a semi-objective look at what he's accomplishing just makes me appreciate what he's accomplishing even more. Right. Because it's not like you have to be a biased fan to yeah, be impressed no by what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, I, I think about that with the Angels because I already do watch more Angels baseball than I watch any other team because of Otani. And Trout is on that team. And by the way, if we're making it the rule of three, that's dangerous because Jose Molina is the catching coach for the Angels. And so sometimes I'll see Otani and Trout and Jose Molina next to each other in the dugout. And those are probably like my three favorite players of the past decade. If we're talking about uh, players whose highlights to value ratio is high. For me, Jose Molina is up there because I've probably watched more GIFs of Jose Molina framing pitches than I have watched just about any other player doing anything. And uh, Jose Molina's value is a little higher if you do take framing into account, but still not quite as high as uh, you would think given by how much attention I paid to him. But he was like a significant player for me because he really opened my eyes to a, a certain skill first behind the scenes when I was an intern and then as a writer covering it and trying to explain the skill to everyone. So that was kind of a landmark moment in my career. And so I appreciate him and, you know, I enjoy watching David Fletcher a lot. He is uh, one of my favorite players, at least when it comes to the skill set. And they've had other fun players over the years. Andrelton Simmons, for instance, who has been a lot of fun to watch. So I watch a lot of the Angels and yet I just I don't feel that emotional attachment to the team that I felt 
for the team that I grew up rooting for. And maybe part of that is that it's just hard to replicate that just from birth kind of attachment that you almost inherit and develop sort of subconsciously. So it's, it's hard to do it at this age, I think, to just adopt the team and feel the same sort of bond that you felt to your childhood team. So that's part of it. And part of it is that, yeah, I'm I'm rooting for individuals, and I suppose at some point it would have to swing over inevitably from rooting from individuals to rooting for a, a collection of those individuals. But it's not quite there for me yet, although like if they were closer to the playoffs, then I would be rooting for them to make the playoffs so that I could watch those players in the right. playoffs. And at that point, I guess what I'm doing is almost indistinguishable from fandom, right? Even if I'm doing it not because I grew up rooting for that team, but just because I think watching that team is fun and fun to cover. And so I want to be able to keep doing it and for those players to be in the spotlight at that time of year. So it's kind of a complicated thing, but maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't think you're overthinking it. I think all of that is right. And like, you know, at some point, the Mariners will make the postseason, and then I'll be in a real pickle because who knows what I'll feel, right? Like I, I, uh, I think that the important thing for folks who are trying to like communicate something about baseball is just to be like mindful of the the blind spots and biases they might have, and ask for help to make sure that they don't, as you said, sort of make the reader nervous that that they're being had, right? That they're Mm -hmm. being given information that isn't complete or isn't being construed accurately. I think that we do this job because we find the game interesting and exciting. Like part Mm -hmm. of why we participate in the the jobs that we do is because we're fans of baseball in sort of a broad sense. And I think that that perspective is is a useful one and i think that it tends to lead to really good work when you're enthusiastic about what you're doing regardless of what it is like i don't know you're probably a better accountant if you're like really excited about accounting Mm -hmm. which i struggle to imagine but i know that there are people who are and i'm glad because you know the world needs good accountants so Mm -hmm. i think just being mindful of that and taking the feedback when it comes that like oh this is bordering on something that doesn't feel like it's accurately capturing baseball as it's being played. I think that's right. the standard, right? You want to be you want to be conveying the game as it is. If you're able to do that and you're also excited about a particular outcome, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. As you said, like this idea that a lot of people have of like the purely objective journalist is well, I think there's just been a lot of good conversation about how that's sort of a a silly concept to begin with and doesn't acknowledge the realities of people and you can be ethical and rigorous and diligent without assuming that there are two sort of equally weighted sides at play at any given moment. So yeah. Yeah. And I hope that conveying our excitement about certain things makes it more exciting to right. our audience. You know, if I were just totally dispassionately saying this Shohei Otani gentleman, statistically speaking, what he is accomplishing here is right. uh, almost unprecedented. This hasn't happened in quite a while. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to Shohei Otani for distinguishing himself statistically. Right. That wouldn't be very exciting, no. I think. But <laughs> if I can convey that it's making me excited to watch him and that I like feel a sense of awe and giddiness while I'm watching him, 
hopefully that will be infectious and people will not be mad at me for talking about Shohei Otani as much as I do because I am experiencing that not just on a intellectual level, but also to some extent on an emotional level. And if you can't get excited about Shohei Otani, then I just, I don't know what can excite you. I guess, you know, unless you are just so beholden to rooting for only one team and that team's players that you can't get excited for an opposing player. But if it's someone like him, then I think that's kind of a shame. <laughs> Frankly, I don't I don't usually like tell people how they should root or not root for, for baseball. Everyone comes to these things in different ways. But if you can only root for the laundry and not have some appreciation for a player who is not on your team, but is accomplishing things in such an amazing and wholesome way, then I feel like you'd be missing out on something. So the fact that we have the scope that we're paying attention to every team and player, you know, on some level in theory, that makes, I think, our our amazement at what he's accomplishing specifically almost more earned because it's like, hey, we're we're taking the bird's eye view here and yet we are still riveted by this particular player. And, you know, I guess you could develop aversions to or affinities for certain teams or organizations just based on like ownership or management or policies or even like with Otani, you could have an affinity for the Angels because they are letting him do this, whereas probably a lot of other teams might not let him do this. And and so you might say, oh, good on you, Angels, for giving him the chance to do this. But it can be kind of a fool's errand to swear off certain teams or pledge your allegiance to certain teams based on you know, whatever political stances or which players a certain team employs at a particular time, because ultimately most or all teams are probably going to disappoint you in similar ways and, and make you happy in similar ways. So I don't know that there are bad teams and, and good teams necessarily, although I guess there are gradations. So is this where I read Mike Trout's TOPS Plus number against the Mariners again? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) May as well bring this full circle. 115! (laughs) Pretty good. All right. We can end there. All right. That will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'll leave you with one more submission for a player with the highest highlight-to-value ratio. This one comes from listener Joe, and it's a different spin on the idea. He writes that that conversation took him back to 1986 to 1989 when he lived in Dallas. He says, I'm a Brewers fan, but baseball is baseball, so I saw a lot of Bobby Valentine's Rangers in the charmingly wretched Arlington Stadium. Regarding players with the highest highlight-to-value ratio, I submit Pete Incavelia. Wait, hear me out. Incavelia played left field for the Rangers and was a slightly above-average player for his career, the best years of which were in Texas. I also saw him play for Oklahoma State in the College World Series. You are not old enough to remember, but Inky was a highlight machine back in the day. Sure, his most famous highlight was of a fly ball bouncing off his head, but he frequently made the ESPN highlight reel in the late 80s for spectacular catches in left field. This was not because he was a good left fielder. It was because he was a poor left fielder. He frequently got a bad jump on even routine fly balls, leading to lots of highlight catches that for most left fielders would be entirely mundane. You premised your discussion on average to below average players who tended to do one thing really well, leading to a lot of highlights. 
Inky should be high on the list for being average and doing one thing poorly enough to lead to a lot of highlights. I like it. I guess you could debate whether a diving catch on a ball that you shouldn't have had to dive for is actually a legitimate highlight, but it's often treated as one, and it can look cool in the moment. So thanks to Joe for an unorthodox and non-Rayordonez nomination. Meg will be in Denver for All-Star Week, so we will record when and where we can. There will certainly be plenty to talk about between the Futures game and the draft and the Home Run Derby and the All-Star game, so we will discuss it all at some point next week. In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Joe Fuqua, James Turco, Tom Rezzo, Jason Brooks, and Robert Marinko. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back at some point early-ish next week, so have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you then. Hey, honey! <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking to. Want a smile on your face? You, you fall in here because the big boppers here, and I know this is the place. Now, this is the place for all the cats John in, man. Blow your horn, man. Blow your horn. Everybody jumps up and down. Holla hard, boy. Boogie woogie.